Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Country Music Made Me podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We truly appreciate the support. Please make sure you are liking, sharing, following, subscribing to us on whatever streaming service you are listening on and head over to social media. Give us a follow there as well so you can stay up to date on all the exciting episodes we have coming up in the future. Just search Country Music Made Me. Today, we are sitting down with writer-producer Jesse Frazier. Now, his path wasn't always pointed towards country music, but that's where life has led him. We talked to him about his journey that started in his hometown of Detroit with classic rock and Motown music, how that transitioned into more electronic music and DJing in university, and how that swung into country music after graduation. So please enjoy our conversation with Jesse Frazier. You grew up, what, in Dearborn, Michigan? Is that where it was? Yeah, it's a suburb of Detroit. It's about 15 minutes outside of Detroit. And um, uh, I grew up there and then went to high school in Flint and then Michigan State for a couple of years before I moved to Nashville. Yeah, and so being that close to Detroit, did that really have an influence on you growing up? Like, was that basically where all your influence was coming from, even though you were sort of on in a suburb of the city? Sure, tons of it. Um my, my family all played music. My dad kind of grew up playing in the Detroit, Detroit uh, bar scene. He played bass and um, had a family band with his brothers. And uh, obviously my parents kind of drove me around listening to nothing but Motown and all these stations were still a huge thing back then. And then kind of moved into classic rock. And um, it was just, I was just inundated with music and kind of knew very young I wanted to do something in music i just didn't really know how I, I i think back to um back then there was these guidance counselor books you go into the counselor's office and it's like pick a career out of this book right yeah <laughs> you know? and uh the closest thing to music industry that they had in those books at the time was like mtv internships and stuff like that so i kind of knew at a young age i wanted to do it i just didn't quite know how and it took me a few years to sort of figure out okay i had to go to a, a music city Right. Yeah. yeah. And I saw on your social media, uh, I think it was last year, you posted about this little book that your mom had found. It was like, I'm special because or something. And it looked <laughs> like maybe early elementary, you had done it. And there was one page that said, um, I, I can make up a song and put it on a tape. Yeah. <laughs> and so how young did that begin of you sort of creating music on your own? Well, there was a I used to take like boom boxes, we call them boom boxes at the time, just this, you know, whatever cassette stereos. And I'd put them next to each other and you could get like a cassette single that would have the instrumental on the back side. Oh, so, okay. Like, like tag team or, or whatever, OPP or whatever the hip hop song was, flip it around and just make up raps, singing into the other boom box and playing the instrumental on the one boom box. So you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> so what age was that for you then? Man, I, I'm so bad at kind of knowing. I know that I started drinking around eighth grade. So it was <laughs> pre that, uh, you know, probably, I don't know, fourth grade, third grade, something like that. Wow. Um, so that was pretty early on then. Yeah, pretty early. <laughs> and in that book as well, I saw that you said you had an uncle that was on you can be a star that was yes. one of the early sort of talent <laughs> contests right yeah 
Yeah, it was like the uh, the other one that wasn't Ed McMahon, right? So the non-Star Search one, and he actually ended up playing drums for like Trisha Yearwood and a few other country artists. So I, I moved town, uh, moved to Nashville with him in 2001, actually. Oh, so, okay. yeah, he's always been sort of like an older brother to me. So was he in the family band as well? He was, yeah. He played drums with my dad and their other brother. It was called Family Affair. <laughs> <laughs> they had like all the fringe and the kind of like Elvis kind of vibe jumpsuits <laughs> and so with that going on in your house did you ever pick up an instrument like do you know how to play yeah yeah um guitars always were laying around it's funny because I hated piano lessons when I was a young kid and uh I, it was a good lesson though I've always told uh we don't have kids but my all of our friends with kids I, I always just say hey look just put the instruments in the living room don't force lessons on them they'll pick them up and then when they're interested, then the lessons make sense. Right. So don't make it a chore because that's my dad always had guitars laying around. And then I got curious about that. But when I was forced to do something, it was like, ah, this is miserable. Now I wish I would have stuck with piano lessons. It's such a valuable instrument to know very well. But um, the best thing to do is just kind of let kids discover whatever it is you're curious about them learning. <laughs> Did you growing up have a truck? I heard you talk about a truck that basically the sound system was worth more than the truck was. Oh, yeah. I had a red S10 that I actually drove until I was 34 years old. <laughs> really? like, like I just was so stubborn. I, I, I kind of made a pact with myself like I'm going to buy my dream car, but I want to pay cash and have like a pretty woman moment where you, you walk in and got your hat on backwards and look like a kid off the streets and then be able to pay cash for this car right so but yeah i drove a, a red s10 with um at the time jl audio were the like the hot speakers and i remember getting the truck box with the subs and uh spending a fortune on subwoofers and just could not wait and it wasn't all hip-hop uh, tons of guns and roses moments with the subwoofers whatever but just driving the neighbors crazy that is hilarious. And the truck stayed together. It didn't shake the truck so much that it fell apart. Well, I mean, for me, it stayed together. I'm sure at stoplights, it hurt, sounded nothing but like a, a rattling rust bucket. But uh, <laughs> I was in heaven. <laughs> That's great. And so when you went off to Michigan State, what was your thought at that point? Were you really focused on doing something within music? Yeah, I, you know, my major at the time at Michigan State was telecommunications, which may, the, the only moment of telecommunications that touches into music is there's some radio. Right. So I started DJing, but I was also doing some local radio DJing for the, the college station. Um, so sort of, uh, but it kind of dawned on me that, okay, let's just go get the general education out of the way. And then I got to get to a city you know, at the time, New York was kind of dying off musically. So I knew it was going to be probably L.A. or Nashville. Atlanta was still kind of happening, but um, I just felt like it was going to be L.A. or Nashville. Right. And you were doing like that sort of when you started your sort of DJing, right? In yeah. University I, I, when you started playing around with it. Really got into um, it's funny because Napster was just kind of booming at the time. And uh, man, Daft Punk's one of the Daft Punk albums, I can't remember if it was Homework or Discovery had just came out and a, a kid down the, the hall from me in the dorms had some, uh, t some turntables. I just really kind of got into it from that. 
Um, and I was playing locally, just acoustic in a little like cover duo, but that's kind of when I really got into the more technical side of things and, and, uh, you know, fell in love with the DJ side of life as well. So what was it about Nashville then? If you were more on the DJ side, like LA seems like a much better spot for that sort of thing. So what was it that drove you to Nashville at that point? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I, I, I kind of was terrified to be honest with you, just because I barely listened to any country music. My dad listened to some of it, you know, growing up. Uh, but you know, I listened to like the Eagles <laughs> Yeah, that was maybe as country as I got. But then the Keith Urban album came out, the Golden Road album, and uh, there was a Tim McGraw album that came out. There was a couple things sonically that I was like, okay, I could, I could kind of get into this. Um, but really what I loved about Nashville, and I still do, and honestly, I, I love LA and I spend a lot of time there as well, but comparatively, the community aspect, just the physics of Nashville, allow for an easier community in other words, I mean, obviously we have Music Row, which is, a you know, for the people that don't know, it's like three streets where a lot of the music industry operates. And that it's kind of branched off now, but honestly, still the entire music industry is within 10 minutes of each other. You can't do that in LA. Right. You know, I mean, so uh, the other thing that I appreciate more all the time is we wake up, we write at 10, 30, 11, we're usually done by four. The hours are way more like a, a nine to five as a songwriter here, whereas in L.A., you typically don't start till 2 p.m. Uh, if you start that early and who knows when you're wrapping up. I mean, you've you've been yourself in many, many studios in the wee hours of the morning, I'm sure. Um, so the, the quality of life as a creator here is is easier for me to adapt to. Um, and then, you know. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. So, you know, but I, I've, I got into the business side of things. Yeah. I kind of gave up on songwriting when I first got here. Cause I was like, there's no way I could do this. So I kind of just thought, well, I'd be, a, I'll be a music publisher. I'll work with songwriters. So I started an internship and, and kind of worked my way up the publishing ladder. And, but I was still DJing. So I thought, well, that would be my creative outlet. I'll go on the weekends. And I got hooked up with a party planner and I was doing all these crazy events, uh, DJing all over the world and um, enjoying that. Never like as a Diplo or a, a Marshmallow artist DJ, but as the, I was doing rich people parties. Right, basically. yeah. <laughs> and um, The DJ to the stars, right? Yeah, yeah, it was nice. So I got connected with Cash Money Records and, and did a bunch of stuff for them and um, was kind of just doing that. And about 10 to 12 years into my time here in Nashville, I, uh, the influx of people changed a little bit, you know? So we had like Megan Trainer moved to town. She was 17 years old from Nantucket. Kid named Shea Mooney was signed to T-Pain, came up from Atlanta and he later on joined Dan and Shea. But um, Chris Stapleton was, was not doing great as an artist at the time. He really, no one was kind of giving his record any attention. He still was just focusing on writing. So all of us were kind of just working and writing and, um, I wasn't really focused on writing country music. I just was something to do at night. Um, you know, I was running the publishing company. I was a VP at this little publishing operation. And then I would use the studio and the weekends and that night. And uh, some of the stuff that we were fooling around with started to get placed and heard. You know, so like I wrote a song with Chris Stapleton that Thomas Rhett heard, or 
going out to DJ with Florida Georgia Line, I wrote my first number one song came out of that. So like all of these little moments of my life kind of started to hit this crossroads of, oh, this is why you moved here. It just took 12 years right? Um, for the town to change, for music to change, the, the people, the changing of the guard. You know, there was a whole changing of the executive level, the artist level and the writer level. It was really a, a big turnover. Uh, and some of the, the legends that I grew up respecting in the business got bitter about it. And some of the legends are still crushing it today if they accepted it, you know? Right. Uh, so it was a really interesting time and it was a great lesson in two things. One, that all of these various hobbies of mine that are musical complemented the other. Cause I was, I was told, you know, pick a lane, pick a lane, pick a lane. And the best thing that I've ever done in my life is not pick a lane. And, and just, I, I still to this day, I'm a DJ, a publisher, a producer, a songwriter. Uh, I have a radio show on Apple. Um, you know, it's just all of them complement the other one. And I, I truly, you know, a great example. I, I just had a remix uh, come out with Miranda Lambert today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, from doing that remix, so my DJ remix background has opened up my relationship with her songwriting. So that doesn't happen as just Jesse Frazier, the songwriter. Right. So uh, that's been the story of my entire life is that by doing spinning house records and hip hop records, I became a country music songwriter. Well, pretty wild. And one of the biggest things about that crossover is with FGL and Sundays, because basically you they wanted you to DJ on their tour. And you said, well, DJ, if you'll let me write with them. Right. Yeah, it was sort of a. I just didn't want to get stuck into, you know, at the time there was, it was starting to become like the genre was paid, paying attention to the DJ world. And I just didn't really want to do a ton of country music DJing. Um, plus I had a full-time job working at the publishing company. So I told the manager at the time, Hey, just give me one weekend. I'll rent my own bus and uh, I'll, I'll DJ your entire tour. If you let me write with the guys one weekend. And um, man, it was crazy though. We got to that weekend and the bus I rented was a piece of crap. It broke down on the side of the road and it was a nervous wreck. And, you know, we finally get there and get things set up. And the, and the boys, Tyler and Brian, were sort of kind of reluctant because they didn't really know me. You know, they had seen me DJing a little bit, but they didn't know me as a writer. Right. And um, they even gave us the disclaimer of, hey, we're, we're kind of done with the record, but... And I remember Tyler at the time, I still tease him about this. He had a, he was driving Harleys at the time and um, it was a gorgeous day. We were in Carolina and he was like, man, I just uh, probably going to not spend too much time up here. I need to go on the Harley and enjoy the day. And so like all these disclaimers of we're not really going to do too much today. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the fact that we were able to, to write their second single off the album and my first number one, Oh, it just was a miracle weekend, basically. Um, but it was a good lesson. And sometimes you got to bet on yourself a little bit. Uh, pay for a better bus would have been a better lesson. But. Yeah. Well, how much confidence does that take for you as a new songwriter? Like they're already, you know, pretty established. They're on their way up. So how much confidence did you have at that time 
in your songwriting ability and the fact that that is the road you now wanted to take as a career? Zero confidence is the really? answer. So, you know, the, the thing that's been interesting for me is, you know, even to this day, I've, I've had some success. I still have anxiety going into the writing room. Like I, I just not necessarily always because of, oh, it's an artist I don't know and I got to kill it. But just from the sense of you, you want to write a great song. You want to come out with something awesome. So when you rewind to zero track record, zero taste, zero confidence in your abilities, you know, you're sort of propelled by the fear in a way. Right. Um, and I think that, I think that sometimes in culture, we, we get confused that we have to, that, that anyone that, that takes a, a chance and, and bets on themselves or they jump without a net is completely confident and, you know, without fear. And I think sometimes it's the opposite for me, at least, I, you know, I can only speak for myself. Um, I was terrified. I was, I remember vividly waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning and we're on the side of the road, broke down and a nervous wreck. And I remember the next day being a nervous wreck when we were trying to bump into them at catering because we didn't have their cell phone numbers to get them to the bus and hoping we could just corral this thing. So, you know, I, I at the time I was probably too preoccupied with all my other fears to be worried about the actual song itself. Right. But, no, I, I think that, I do think that we, we need to show our flaws more to one another um, I think that's the most confidence building thing that you can do for somebody is, is to show that you weren't confident right. and go, Hey, I was terrified. I was scared. I still am a lot of times. I don't, I don't personally believe that anyone knows a hit song. So I think we, we have taste and we have track records, but if we did, if we all knew for sure, then a Max Martin would never have a miss at radio. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the, I think that we get caught up, I think in this highlight reel of life and, bet on yourself, always believe in yourself. Uh, it's hard to believe in yourself 100%. Now, the, the key is just don't stop. If you're right. scared, I get it, you know, shake it off, do whatever you need to do in the moment, breathe through it, you know, and just jump in. And um, that's, that's my motto. <laughs> so I just don't think the confidence is always there to back you up all the time, you know? Right. And with that jumping in, you talk about now when you got to Nashville, you did your 12 years before you got your first cut. And that was with major Bob music and you rose up the ranks there and were eventually the VP of A&R. And then you kind of got to the point where you felt stagnant. Right. And then the opportunity came with rhythm house to sort of lead a new project now, what was the feeling like at that time when you were offered that project and just the two roads that you could take at that point? Right. Well, you know, that was another good lesson in kind of going at the time I had so much freedom at Major Bob. I had been there 15 years. I had the kind of freedom we discussed to be able to go, hey, I'm going to take Friday off and go DJ for the weekend and I'll be back Sunday night uh, or I'm going to go on this bus and <laughs> break down the side of the road. Um and bring opportunities in for the company. So I knew that I didn't want to work for a corporation. I had been approached by Sony and uh, a couple other labels to kind of come on, maybe do some A&R work, maybe be a, a, a staff publisher. I'm, I'm sorry, a staff songwriter, but also A&R. And I just really needed the autonomy. So I just was really picky. And um, 
that was probably one time where I maybe was confident in my uh, abilities or, or just confident in what I knew I needed. I just didn't know how to find that necessarily. And, you know, I, I'm a spiritual person, so there is a God thing of, of opportunities, whether that's you move to town and the town needs to change a little bit. So maybe it's a 10 year town for a lot of people, or in this case, you know, Warren Chapel tried to sign to come after me, and I said, "Well, I just didn't really want to be a just a corporate A and R publisher." Well, then Ben Vaughn at Chapel reapproached me and said, "Hey, look, you know, Jay Z's Rock Nation's looking to do something with us. You really should talk with them because you're one of few people in town that is so multi genre minded. It could be a really good fit." So right. I flew to LA and met with um, their representatives in the publishing company at Rock Nation, and uh, I just. You know, I loved what they said. I loved their their culture and their concept and the fact that it was going to be so hands off, you know, and they literally said, hey, we need you. You don't need us, uh, but we'd love to be in partnership. And, you know, it was it was diff- the only difficult thing then was being a little bit deer in headlights just because talking about that red S10, you know, I grew up worshiping Jay-Z. So um, it was I had to be very careful that I wasn't just like seduced by the name only and that it was going to be a smart move but uh it's been the best thing we ever did my wife is the vp here uh and runs the publishing company and um we opened up in 2016 and uh they've been great partners and so i have a partnership with warren chapel and rock nation and um it's it's amazing kind of getting to work with uh your heroes a little bit you know and you're working with your wife. And I think I saw a quote from her that said, you guys really never wanted to work together, but yeah. then it just kind of happened that she started doing more and more with the, with the company and just kind of moved into the position eventually. So what has it been like? It's been great now. I think for any people that are thinking of working together, all the fears that we were worried about were justified and valid because at the end of the day, when you go home and complain about your boss, your coworkers, and that's your spouse, uh, <laughs> that's taking work home with you in a whole unique way, right? So, you know, we had to go through that. A lot of couples counseling, you know, we've been in my entire relationship with her, which is great, but, you know, you really have to learn communication and you have to learn different work styles, you know, different flows, you know, um, certain things that drive her crazy don't drive me crazy and vice versa. You really have to understand that, you know, this is a very difficult business. It's a business of sales. Ultimately yeah. we are selling uh, songs, even though we, we don't, we're, we're, we're placing songs. It's more like movie casting, but still it's, it's the business of sales. And the fact that, you know, uh, one of my colleagues said one time, we're in the business of selling brushes to bald guys because the world doesn't really need another song. You know, right. I wrote 200 plus songs last year. I'm one person. Think about the Paul McCartney catalog that's uncut or all these <laughs> amazing songwriters out there. So we really don't need more songs to be written. Um, so it's really the sales business. I need to believe in my product, but I need to get this placed with these artists that we work with, you know, or, or collaborate with them. Right. And with the number ones, what is that like for you? Because a lot of artists I talk to, you know, you say, how did you feel when you got that number one? And they were like, well, it was great, but I was almost too focused on what was ahead that I didn't get to enjoy it. So for you as a songwriter, do you celebrate those number ones? Getting a number one is, is, is insanity. 
you know, it, it's uh, so many things need to fall into place. Not only do you need a hit song, but, you know, a perfect example right now, I've got a couple songs, fortunately, in the, in the top 10. Luke Combs just spent four weeks at number one. Yeah. So what that does is it changes all the labels have a plan of like, oh, we're trying to get to number one on the charts, trying to get to number one. But if a Luke Combs sits there for four weeks and they had a target date that they were like trying to push the song, go, hey, play our song, play our song. It's, it changes everything. So, you know, the so much just needs to fall into place. And um, so there are those humbling moments, especially at Triple Play Awards where, you know, okay, you had three number ones in a 12-month calendar you know, period of time. It does feel like a miracle and it, and it is amazing. But every single number one, I'm always trying to tell my younger peers or anyone that just had their first number one, you have to pause and enjoy it because it's very easy to get into the cycle of um, what's next. Yeah. And I mean, I'm fortunate, you know, I've had 18 number ones now. And I, I very vividly remember the, the idea of one number one would be insanity to me and trying to, as a mantra, getting myself to remember that. Right. Um, it, it's hard because you, you want to shift your goals. You know, you have ambition, but ambition and ego get intertwined very, very easily. And very quickly, goal shifting just turns into not living in the present. What's next? What's next? What did I didn't, what I didn't get, what song didn't go number one, all those thoughts right. instead of living in the moment. So it, to me, it's a practice and not a perfection of, of that mantra is trying to, um, the other thing that happens in the music industry is that we, we sort of put a governor on our joy. And what I mean by that is you get used to getting your butt kicked quite a bit. Right. So you try not to get your hopes up too much when good news happens. That way, when the bad news happens, you're not completely devastated. Right. But the only danger in that is that you sort of live in this sort of numb vibe. You're like, oh, well, the song went on hold, but you never know. Oh, the song got cut, but don't know if it's going to be a single. Oh, it's a single, but you don't know if it's going to do well. So you're always trying to like tamper your joy so that when the rug gets pulled out from under you, you're not crushed. Right. But I do think that there's danger in that. You know, there's, it's almost healthier to go through a moment of devastation, <laughs> get over it, move on, and then be extremely excited about the, the, the joyful side of it. So it's just a tricky balance of um, that I'm still learning, and I think I forever will, as long as as long as I'm still here and and uh, able to work in this business. That will be the the practice. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that as a songwriter, and when songwriters are coming up, it's an interesting balance because you have to have a thick skin, and you you say you sort of have to have that numb feeling so you don't get too high and too low, but you also have to be open. And you have to be emotional, you know, to write these types of songs. So is that a tricky balance in having the thick skin, but also having that emotion? It's a dance like every single day. Absolutely. You know, so starting at the writing room side of it, you may have some tracks prepared for somebody and they may not like any of them. You may get into the write and you have some hook ideas or some title ideas and you present and they didn't like them. Or you may say some lines that people didn't like. Uh, or there may be certain dynamics where the artist in the room is really listening to one of the co-writers and not the other co-writer. 
um, and you still have to kind of just keep plugging away and move forward. Or you may just not, sometimes there's days where you're on one page and the other writers are on a different page and you're like, wait, what? There's all kinds of different things, right? It's taste and it's, it's like blind dating in a lot of ways because it's very common for me to jump into a writing room and I've never met these people before. Right. And, and sometimes you have your regulars, but you never know. So yes, the, the, all of the above, um, thick skin, uh, humble yourself. Sometimes you need to hold space, you know, like a insecure writer that that's like just trying to get their line in, make sure the room knows what they do. You know, uh, uh what, what about, what about this? Like, look, sometimes you just need to be present. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Sometimes you just need to hold space, listen, you know, insert yourself. You know, if you have a strong thought and you know that the train's moving, present that thought. Even if you think that they're going off a cliff and you think that this one line or this idea saves it, you don't want to tank the right for the sake of your one idea. Right. So say you're a thought and if no one picks up on it, maybe, maybe they do, maybe they love it. And like, oh, that's a good point. Maybe they're like, eh, I like it the way it is. You got to get off that thought fast. Otherwise, you're going to be in your head brooding and bitter and quiet and pouting or whatever the thing is. Then jump out of the writing room when the song's done. You know, I write 150 to 200 songs a year. I won Writer of the Year in 2018 with six singles. So that ratio is worse than baseball. But that's kind of, you know, 10% would be ideal for us. You know, right. 10% of what we write become a hit song would be crushing it for anybody. Um, you know, so, and that's it, across the board. Uh, I heard uh, a friend of ours that passed away a, a couple of years ago named Busby. He was on a podcast once and said, you know, if you wrote every single day in the month, right. Yep. And you wrote one hit song a month, that would be 12 hit songs a year. You would win writer of the year in pop or country hands down. No one writes that many hit singles a year. That's still failing 29 or 30 days a month. You know, right. so it's a very unique business where I'm being told no, or we call it, they say pass. Uh, they pass right. on the song. I'm going to pass on that one or whatever. We get told no, obviously more than we get told yes. Um, so you just kind of take it on the chin and move on. You know, like my wife, She's not in the writing room, but she is going, oh my gosh, I love this song. We're so excited about this. She may just get a one word pass back. And that really knocks the wind out of you. You're like, dang it, man. I thought that they were going to flip on this song. Yeah. So it's very tricky. But um, yeah, so thick skin, uh, you know, not necessarily confidence, but the, the ability to just kind of go, hey, man, shut up and let the room breathe a little bit, you know? Maybe your idea is not right. I've been in rooms, speaking of which, like Sundays, we were sitting there and it's kind of about smoking weed and sitting in some Nike Jordans and just kind of having a lazy day. But at the time, it was pretty progressive language for country radio. So in my head, I'm going, oh, my gosh, this feels incredible, but this is going to go nowhere because pop, you know, country radio is not going to play this song. Right. Then it becomes a single and a number one. So all these little lessons in life going, none of us know. We, we just, you do the best that you can. And I try to actually trim out my co-writer relationships. Any of the people that come in here and they know a hit song, that doesn't feel like a hit. That doesn't mean that. Now, yes, you have to use your gut and your track record to kind of carve this thing out of nowhere. 
But at the same time, none of us in the room, no one person knows for sure what a hit song is. Right. Because we've all been a part of songs that we thought for sure were a smash that died in the 40s or songs that we thought would go nowhere that change our lives. So it's a, it's just, I think, trying to stay humble and no co-writes. And then, you know, if you believe in something, just because you're told no. I had a song with Rascal Flats called I Like the Sound of That that the band passed on. They didn't like it. Oh, okay. And then we went back and said, hey, one more time. <laughs> and they, they took it and ended up becoming a number one single for them. Yeah. So, you know, I don't make a habit of going, I know you told me no, but but every once in a while you you got to go, hey, I, I, I really believe in this thing. I, I just, I wanted to play it. It's been a few months. I need to out of here again. You just never know. And after so many years in the industry, the past two and a half years, 2019, your wife, Stevie, battled breast cancer. 2020 was 2020. So what have these past couple of years taught you? Have you come out a bit of a different person? <laughs> Man, when I think about it like that, like we went through, uh, my wife had breast cancer and, and a bunch of surgeries. Um, and then going into, we thought uh, 2020 is going to be the, the coast year. <laughs> it's going to be just easy breezy and to just kind of get rocked like we all did. Um, you know, it, at the end of the day, it does kind of show you what's important. And I'm so proud of what I do for a living. And, and I, I, in good and bad ways, I'm addicted to this. Like it, I sometimes feel like the music industry is like heroin. So um, <laughs> it's very euphoric at times and it will make you feel like a, just, you know, so defeated at other times. But ultimately there are moments in life that sort of recalibrate what's important to us all. Um, I wish that it didn't take those moments. Yeah. It's all to kind of, get rattled a little bit, but it, it sort of does. And I think that, um, you know, every once in a while you kind of get shook to your core and, and kind of go, man, ultimately, no matter how many number ones I get, no matter what goes down, you know, my wife and I can go somewhere and be happy and enjoy these moments and, and smile and enjoy life. And you just never know. I, I mentioned a buddy of mine, Busby earlier, who, you know, was diagnosed and very quickly in the grand scheme of things passed away. And you just, we take so much stuff for granted. Accidents happen, illnesses come up, you know, and we just get so caught up in this stuff that ultimately we'll look back on one day and go, dang, you stressed out a lot about that. I get it. I mean, you know, anyone that says that money doesn't buy happiness, I understand what that means. But at the same time, financial peace is one of the biggest stress causers of, of any human being I know. Yeah. Right? So financial freedom and peace is such a, uh, in, in any industry is that, is that goal. But man, we, we always are so caught up in, man, as soon as I get there, I'll be happy. As soon as we get that done, we'll find some peace or hopefully 2021 will be easier, this, that, or the other. And life's hard. Things come at you, you know, and you just don't really know. So it's really kind of taught me again, a practice, not a perfection of, of just sort of going, you know, what, what am I doing? Like, what, am I, what am I getting so caught up in these, these feelings of, Oh, I got, you know, I got to get into this camp or I got to get on this co-writer. I got to get on that album. And, and ultimately, man, you know, 
a, go to the beach with my wife or go on a walk with my wife or cut up with some friends and, and just laugh and smile. Maybe that's the healthiest thing for me to do at that moment, you know? With Rhythm House, with how you've been able to develop it and get it to the point it is with, you know, a great group of writers, you're very successful on a whole. So where are you hoping to take it in the next couple of years? Do you have sort of a vision of where you see it going at this point? You know, um, the difficult thing sometimes is when you're doing what you love in a lot of different facets is making sure you do kind of have those goals, you know, not getting caught up in that goal shifting, like I said earlier, yeah. but making sure you're going, well, we're doing what we want to do. Just kind of want to do that on a bigger scale. Right. One thing that's been very valuable for us is in the last couple of years, the, the stigmas between genres have really crumbled. You see way more pop collaborations and EDM collaborations with country music artists than you ever have. And yeah. that's so valuable because specifically the genre of EDM exports very well around the world. Country music doesn't notoriously export very well to other countries. Um, but when you have Chainsmokers or Marshmallow or Kygo or, you know, Diplo collaborating with our country artists, it's, it takes us everywhere. And uh, we've been really focusing on a lot of those collaborations. We just recently had the Marshmallow Kane Brown collab. We just had the Kygo and One Republic collab. And for, you know, whatever reason, a lot of our, we call them top line. So top line would be the melody and the lyric. So remove the music from it, the musical bed, and just the melody, vocal singing, and the lyric. Right. We'll take those and send them to DJs, and, and it's been a very lucrative aspect. So I'd love to see us doing more of that because I feel like we've been one of the pioneers of that in Nashville. Uh, I love the fact that a lot of our writers are working in multiple genres. I love the fact that we are expanding our own relationships and, and artists that we've not ever worked with. So more of that, and I would like to start developing some artists in the house a little bit. Um, it's a lane that I'm really picky about because uh, production is such a time-consuming thing. Right. So it's got to be a voice that I really can, you know, just fall in love with listening to and not just want to produce a couple sides here and there, but to fully develop them in-house. And my, my wife has amazing taste in music. So we usually see eye to eye. So I could see us doing some more artist development. But, you know, the multi-genre expansion, there's always more to, to exploit and get out there copyright-wise. And uh, that's something I'm just very excited about is finding those new lanes, finding the new, new ways to create music, um, whether that's, you know, we made an elevator music EP last year yeah. all the way to EDM <laughs> music. So just the, whatever, you know, we're kind of wide open to create new opportunities for our catalog. And that must be a cool thing to see a song go along and then to hear the final product of what that final artist is able to do with it and just the emotion they're able to put behind it and how they're able to make it their own. Yes, it is. I have a ton of respect for that. I think you, you we, we call it demo-itis. So a demo is a demonstration recording. So when you leave my co-writes, you'll probably leave that day or the next day with a demonstration recording. Then we'll take that into the studio and, and kind of use the live musicians and, and bring it to life a little bit. Right. Um, but sometimes you get what's called demo-itis. <laughs> and that's basically you've lived with this version of the song for so long. And then an artist takes it and cuts it and puts their own spin on it, makes it their own. 
and sometimes you're drawn to a certain version of it. Thank you guys once again so much for listening and thank you to Jesse for stopping by and sharing his story. Please make sure you are liking, sharing, following, subscribing to us on whatever streaming service you are listening on and head over to social media and give us a follow there as well so you can stay up to date on all the exciting episodes we have coming up in the future. Just search Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much once again for listening and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 